Jacob's preparation to meet his brother Esau. The first thing we note about the text is God's angelic watch care over Jacob in this travel. Once Jacob was free of dealing with his father-in-law and was back on track doing as God had instructed him, namely chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Once that was in place and Jacob is moving in that direction, we are informed that the Lord sent angelic messengers to affirm his presence and his watch care over Jacob. The particular way in which this reads, verse 1, the angels of God met him, speaking of Jacob, and the added statement, when Jacob saw them, verse 2, are indicators that this is not a dream, nor is this a day vision that Jacob is experiencing, but rather an actual physical manifestation. You remember that back in Genesis 28, as Jacob fled from the wrath of his brother Esau, he arrived at an unknown place, he took a stone for a pillow, and I'm reading scripture, he had a dream, a dream, in which he saw a staircase resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God ascending and descending on it, with the Lord standing above it. Genesis 28, verse 12 and following. There God promised Jacob the land that was pledged to Abraham and Isaac. And furthermore, I am with you, and I will watch over whatever you go, wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promise. This was the start of the flight to Haran, where for 20 years Jacob worked as Laban's son-in-law. And Jacob saw all this and he heard all this in a divine dream, one of the ways in which God communicated to people in Old Testament times. Now, some 20 years later, Jacob has listened to God's command. So here's something audibly, chapter 31, verse 3, God said to him, return to Canaan. And so in obedience, he left Laban with his family. And after settling uh, their differences in a peace treaty, he's on the road again once more when God comes to him, and again this time with holy angels as God's emissaries to confirm God's watch care over Jacob. This is not a dream, this is not a vision, but an actual manifestation of angelic beings. Now there's a pattern here. It's, it's not a hard and fast pattern. And that is because God can do what he wants, whenever he wants. And he does, just because he did something in the past doesn't make him obligated to do the same thing, the same identical thing again. That said, observe, however, that when God revealed himself to Abraham, we're going to go back to granddad now, originally back in Genesis 12, we are told the Lord said, said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land that I will show you. Chapter 12, verse 1. And Abraham obeyed. Then once in Canaan, and after Lot parted from his uncle, God again said to Abram, Look north, look south, all the land you see I will give you and your offspring forever. These verbal instructions or promises happened again when God uh, disallowed Eliezer to become uh, Abraham's servant. He wasn't having any children. He said, well, maybe, Lord, you would be willing to take Eliezer, my servant, and make him uh, my heir. And God spoke to him and said, no, 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 this Eliezer will not be your heir. And in the end of chapter 15 in Genesis, when God cut the covenant with Abraham, we read, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. So now we're going to see a divine dream. This is something different. God in the form of smoking fire pot and the blazing torch passed through covenant row to ratify God's promise to Abraham unilaterally. So, so far, we got an audible voice. That's one way that God 
spoke to people in the Old Testament times, and we have a dream. Uh, so it's to be a nighttime thing while one is sleeping. Chapter 17, Abraham is 99 years old, and it says the Lord appeared to him. Now we have a third thing, vision. And inaugurated the sign of circumcision with a name changed to Abraham. You're going to not be called Abraham anymore. You'll be going to call Abraham. Sarai got a name changed from Sarai to Sarah. And he, she was promised a son in her old age. All of this by way of a vision. Vision being in the daytime. Not a dream. This is, not, this is like a day dream. Only a vision was revealed to him. Then we move to chapter 18, and it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. The scripture says Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing there. Sarah was instructed, quick, get a meal ready for the visitors, which they ate. And one of these three was identified as the Lord. The Lord. The other two, as they were identified as two angels who went on to Sodom to rescue Lot and destroy the city. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now this latter means of communication was not a voice, it was not a dream, it was not a vision, but an actual physical manifestation of God and angels in the form that could be seen, in the form that could be heard, they could eat food, they could drink a beverage, they could communicate to Abraham and later to Lot in very ordinary ways. So now we have four means used by God in the Old Testament <clears throat> to communicate his will to them. He could speak to them audibly, an audible voice, send them a dream while they sleep, give them a day vision, number three, and number four, he could take on a physical manifestation. We call these theophanies. Theos, the Greek word for God, and anophany or an appearance, an appearance of God. If it's Jesus Christ, we call it a Christophany. And I might as well say that most of the theophanies, if not all of them in the Old Testament, are Christophanies, the appearances of Christ in human form. Now this latter one is what we have in our text. Verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met with him. This is not a vision. This is not a dream. And it says... When Jacob saw them, again, it's not a vision, it's not a dream. He said, this is the camp of God, and so he named that place Mahanaim, meaning two camps. Now, each manifestation of God, audible voice, dream, vision, physical appearance, shows what? It shows progressive revelation which is what we're talking about when we talk about the Old Testament coming into the New Testament. Each one adding another and stronger affirmation that in the end, the voice heard from heaven, the dream dreamed in the night, the vision seen in the day, and finally the physical appearance of heavenly dignitaries were not the imaginary musings of ordinary men, but rather God's supernatural revelations to sinners of his heavenly will and his plan for his people. Remember, no Bible at this time. No Bible at this time. No codification. Nothing written down. So God is communicating to his human creatures in a way that far exceeds the testimony of the stars and the planets and the order of the universe Although the psalmist was right to say, as he does, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 19, verse 1. This is something different. 
the stars, the planets, the universe, and so on, is what we call natural, from the word nature. Natural revelation. You can't have a creator creating things and not leave his mark of creation, whatever he's done. And so the psalmist is saying, take a look at what God has done. What do you see up there? Billions of stars you see up there. Do you see evolution in place? No, you see a creator. You see magnitudes of various universes and so forth. And of course, with the invention of the telescope that came in much later history, they saw even more and saw even more. What I'm talking about this morning is not natural revelation. What I'm talking about this morning in terms of these voices, dreams, visions, and so on, is special revelation. What's special about it? God himself is speaking, directing, and it holds a lot more weight than natural revelation. It has been said, mankind can look at the stars in the heavens, and there is enough in natural revelation to proclaim that there is the God, the Creator, but there is not enough in natural revelation to tell them how to get right with that God because of being a sinner. For that, you need something special. You need special revelation. You need a word from God. And that's how we got our Bible, and that's why we got our Bible, God speaking to us. Well, secondly, if you'll note, Jacob announced his coming arrival to Esau. He's got these angelic messengers that are with him and caring for him. But verse 3 says, Jacob sent messengers ahead to Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Well, that's, that's Esau country there, all of that territory that, that's listed there. Now, my question is, why would Jacob do such a thing? Why would he tell his brother in advance, I'm coming home? One might expect him to kind of maybe slip into Canaan quietly, stealthily, no announcement, no disclosure, certainly without fanfare. Why? Because uh, there's, a, there's a problem with his brother. There's an estrangement there. But he doesn't do this. And instead, he chose to face his estranged brother head on. What is, what, what is he attempting to do? Look at verse 4. This is what you're to tell my... Listen how he words things. This is what you are to tell my master Esau. Hmm. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban, and I have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants, men servants maid servants, now I am sending this message to my Lord, our Lord with a little L, that I may find favor in your eyes. Could anything be more clear? Jacob addresses Esau as master, his Lord, himself as servant. He's doing all this as a form of humility and contrition. And his statement on what he owns, cattle, donkey, sheep, and so on, as well as many servants, is an indication that he wants nothing, nor does he need anything from Esau of a monetary value. Brother, if you think I'm coming home to bilk you of your goods or whatever, I want you to know I need nothing from you. Now, the response from Esau was a bit disconcerting, to say the least. Jacob's messengers returned, saying... We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Verse 6. Not what Jacob wanted to hear. 400 men. Whoa. Who needs 400 men to greet a long-lost brother returning home? This doesn't sound good. In fact, it appears to be rather ominous, and that's exactly the way Jacob understood the news. Look at verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds, and camels as well. And he thought, if Esau comes and he attacks me, the group that is left may escape. I read a number of commentators on this, and you know what? Jacob is criticized by many commentators for this. Suggesting a lack of faith in God's promise of protection and God's promise of care. But I don't see it that way. 
I don't think that's what's going on. Faith in God does not exclude reasonable precautions in the face of danger. To be forewarned, as they say, is to be forearmed. His two-camp endeavor, I think that's a smart move. He's looking out for his wives. He's looking out for his children as best he knows how. And this does not mean that he has dismissed God's promise of protection. So, well, how do you know that? Well, that's the third point. Look at his prayer. A prayer. Can you believe this? Jacob's going to pray. Verse 9 and following. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abram, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will, be, I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindnesses and faithfulness that you have showered upon me. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Chapter 32, verse 9 through 12. Observe in this prayer both affirmation and supplication. Firstly, affirmation, verse 10. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown me. I had only my staff. He's talking about uh, a shepherd's staff. You know, the little hook uh, instrument. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I've become two groups. It's his way of saying to God, you know, I'm very thankful. I, I, I came into this country penniless, and I'm leaving as two large groups. I got all kinds of livestock, and I have children on top of that. And then there's supplication. Look at verse, seven, uh, verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I'm afraid that he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely give you, I, sh I will surely prosper you, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Are we not seeing here, finally, finally, and a long time coming, the glimmer of true faith within Jacob? No longer relying solely upon his wits, but beginning to understand somewhat the absolute necessity for a helpless sinner to call out to God to be rescued from what cannot be avoided by human ingenuity alone. This is a real change. For Jacob. Jacob's faith, well, yes, it's true, it is not pervasive in his personality as yet, but the embers are there and they're sent by God. And, and he's beginning to draw this deceiver away from his sin and into the forgiveness and reconciliation of God. Now I want you to note there that he prayed instead of trying to bargain with God as he did at Bethel. This is a real prayer. If you go back and read the deal at Bethel when he saw the staircase and so on, it was more like a bargaining chip. Lord, if you'll do this and this and this and this, and then I'll do this for you. That's not praying. This is praying. This is great prayer. We should take it to heart. Fourthly, that brings us to Jacob's peace offering. Verse 13 and following says he spent the night there. Now, I imagine... I imagine there wasn't too much sleep going on for poor Jacob that night. 400. My, my brother's coming. He's got 400 men with him. Mm. But it says that he spent the night there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. And then it's, it, the scripture tells us what the gift was. 200 female goats, 20 male goats. 200 ewes, 20 rams. 30 female camels with their young, not the number of the young aren't given. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. I added it all up. It's 550 animals plus, plus because we don't know how many young camels there were. And it says he put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. And he said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds 
So you can see that how this is going to, you know, one group of animals is going to get 550. This is a lot of livestock, folks. So this group of livestock are going to come with their servants there, and then there's going to be a space, and then boom, there's another wave, and there's a space, and then there's going to be another wave. Just think about the impression that's going to be made doing all of this. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and he said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. And he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent, by, sent to my Lord Esau. And he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who follow the herds, you're to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, as though he has to punctuate the point, be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts that I am sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps, perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps he will receive me, uh, implied, and not kill me. <laughs> Maybe this will work out. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. The scripture says, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Verses 13 through 21. You will notice that to his statements of humility, addressing Esau as master, my Lord, himself as servant, he now adds a hefty, costly, monetary peace offering. And it's Jacob's way of saying, brother, if I have robbed you of your rightful prosperity and preeminence as head of the clan... When I tricked you out of your birthright and stole your blessing, I'd like you to, to have this gift as compensation for my deceptive ways and my heartfelt desire to be reconciled to you in peace. What will Esau do? What will his response be? Well, you're going to have to wait to find out. <laughs> Chapter 33, uh, we'll pick that up. For now, I want to look I want to look at the spiritual lessons from Jacob's preparation to meet his estranged brother. Powerful things here. Number one, firstly about this whole business of revelation. All of God's methods in revealing himself to sinners, we, we talked about audible voice, dream, vision, physical appearance. All of these ways in God to communicate himself pale in comparison to the final revelation that God has given of himself, namely, his son, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In the past, he's taking a look backwards. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers. Jacob would have been one of them, of course. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. We've looked at some of those ways. The audible voice, the dream, the vision, and so on. But, but, in these last days, the days in which we are living, the writer is saying, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. He goes on. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, get it now, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 1, the first three verses. Jesus taught his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to me, show us the Father? John 14, verse 9. We've learned from our study in John's Gospel on Sunday evening that Jesus could challenge the religious leaders who sought to take his life. 
What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do what the Father does. John 10, verse 36 and following. By the way, you hear critics say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, that that was just something his disciples claimed for him. Here's a text, John 10, verse 36 and following, where Jesus says, I am God's Son. Can't be any more clear than that. What all this means, of course, is that there is nothing more in terms of God revealing himself that is yet coming. In the historical Jesus, and I'm making a point of that because people talk about Jesus in a mythical sense. No, in the historical Jesus, all revelation from God has ceased. It has ceased. Not angels, not visions, not dreams, not physical appearances, nor miracles, nor voices, nor speaking in tongues, nor catastrophic events yet to come. None of them will say or do any more to man about God and his will than what we find in Jesus Christ's person and teaching. He is the exact representation of God. So then Jesus can say, when you see me, you've seen God the Father. When you heard me, you've heard God the Father. And you know, the book of Hebrews in our New Testament scriptures emphasizes, the point of the book is to emphasize the superiority of Jesus so that mankind will stop searching for salvation some other way and acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus, God's Son. So the book of Hebrews is all about in a nutshell. Our text, God sent angels to guide Jacob and to protect him. Well, what about angels? Well, as good as that was, Hebrews 1 verse 7 says, Speaking of angels, God says, He makes His angels winds His servants. His servants flames of fire. But... Contrast, about the sun, S-O-N, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Hebrews 1, verse 7 and following. You see the contrast? Yet what we find in our day is what Paul warned against and condemned. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. That's our day and age, Colossians 2 verse 18. And what about our day? We hear, hear constant reports. They're in the rags. You can get them on at the newsstand as you're checking out with your groceries. Constant reports of people seeking revelations from angels or praying to dead saints or talking to talking icons and on and on. They keep looking for God in all the wrong places. It's sad, very sad. Again, the writer of Hebrews Moses was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, speaking God's word to a stiff neck and rebellious people. But Hebrews 3 verse 5 keeps Moses in proper perspective, saying this, Moses was faithful as a servant, here we go again, in all God's house, testifying, and I would say audibly and written down by writing, he did testify both ways, audibly and in written form, testifying to what would be said in the future. That's Moses. He was a great servant in God's house. First five books of our Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was written by Moses under the inspiration of God's Spirit. 
So the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that. I mean, Moses was a great prophet, boy. He testified what, was, what God was up to. But Christ, here we go with the contrast, is faithful as a son over God's house. He's not a servant in the house. He's over the house. And we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Hebrews 3, verse 5 and 6. Now, brethren, we have people in our day supposedly searching for God through visions and dreams and audible voices and signs and miracles and the like. When Jesus, the exact representation of God, is ignored or substituted with lesser things. So they're disingenuous. And there's a penalty for that. The writer of Hebrews goes on. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctifies him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Hebrews 10, verse 28 and 29. And two chapters later, chapter 12, verse 25, the writer says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, Moses, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns from heaven? Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there's, there's various ways that God has spoke to, his, to people in the past. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. So Jesus is the fullest, and may I say he is the final revelation of God's given to men. Nothing better is coming. Nothing more expansive is coming. When you find Christ, you have found God. Secondly, let us learn that God's guardian angels work for the benefit of God's chosen people. Here's another thing. People like to talk about the guardian angels. Books are written about the guardian angels. What are the guardian angels? There is such a thing, you know. I've been saying all along that Jacob at this point in his life is not a true believer, and I hope to prove that in our next study. But at this point in his life, Jacob is like an excellent observer of those who truly know God. His father Isaac being the closest example that he has. His grandfather Abraham being a second close these two men, Isaac and Abraham, being considered patriarchs in their own right, had a tremendous influence on Jacob, even in his skeptical state. When Jacob boasts of God's intervention in his life, notice how he expresses such. Chapter 31, verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac... Had not been with me, you, Laban, surely would have sent me away empty-handed. So when he's, when he's referencing God in his life, he references it to his dad's God and his grandpa's God. Why doesn't he claim the benevolence shown to him as a real result of his own God? Can he not say, if my God had not been with me, you would have sent me away penniless? Well, he refuses to do that because though he does not know God in that personal way, he respects the God of his father and does not want to blaspheme his name through deceit as though God was in fact his Savior and Lord. I don't think he's there yet. All right, then why would God's angels protect care for, even prosper, Jacob as an unbeliever. Yes, we would expect to find God's 
angels watching over his people, but Jacob is yet a pagan and his family is a pagan. What's uncle and Rachel doing? They're carrying around their gods, their little deities, their little idols. That's his family. Here's the answer. It's from Hebrews 1, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews asked the question, Are not all angels, all angels, get this now, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve, get the phrase now, those who will inherit salvation? Hmm, that's a little different twist. God's angels appear to Jacob in his case, not because he's already a saved man, but because he will become a child of God. He will inherit salvation. The verb here, will inherit, is a, is a Greek word, mellow. It means to be at the point of action. Or another way to say it, it's a strong form of the idea of expectation, which is about to come true. What that means is that Jacob's salvation is not in doubt, but then neither is yours, nor mine, nor anyone whom God sets his affection upon. Jesus put it this way, all that the Father gives me, they, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6, verse 37. The blessed truth of this, brethren, is this. We are not afterthoughts with God. We are on-purpose thoughts to God. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And as angels see to it, that we make it safely into God's family, even though even while working with us before the hour we believe. And that's what's going on here. God, through his angels, he's directing Jacob into a right relationship with him. So are there guardian angels? Yeah, for God's saints. And even for those that aren't saints yet, but will become, for unbelievers that will become believers yeah, they're, they're. and the neat thing about it is the writer here says, are not all angels this? That's why they exist. Point three, lesson three. Beware of sincere and false humility when making amends with those you have wronged. When Jacob sent out his messengers to intercept Esau's advances, that entourage of 400 men that is coming to meet him, Jacob told his servants, be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him, meaning Esau, with these gifts that I am sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. And the idea is, Receive him in peace. <laughs> Here's my question. Did Jacob really see himself as Esau's servant? He certainly said it many times. And even calling Esau Lord, verse 5. My master, verse 4. You can just see the bowing and scraping that's going on figuratively here. Statements of self-deprecation and humility can be nothing more than a ploy. They can be a means to gain yet another advantage over a foe by convincing him or her that all is well when bitterness of heart yet may remain. God is not into showmanship. Boy, we're seeing a lot of that in the, in the uh, debates and people running for the presidency. He's not into showmanship. He's not into words and actions which have at their base deception. Like a magician who's moving and doing something with one hand while he's really doing something over here 
that he doesn't want the people to see with the other hand. Here's what the scripture says, Colossians 2, verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility, hmm, false humility, and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Colossians 2, verse 18. But he talks about false humility. What's false humility? It's, it's humility for show. You know anybody in the uh, New Testament that did that? The Pharisees did that. It says when they pray, what the, where, did, where did they pray? Anyone? On the street corners. What? Down there at, you know, marketplace in Maine? And Jesus said, this is why they did it. They wanted to be seen as men of prayer. But when you pray, you, my disciples, you go into your closet and shut the door so that you can talk to God, you and alone. And he who sees in secret and hears in secret will reward you accordingly. God is not into showmanship. Again, the scripture says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Romans 6, verse 17 and 18. Jacob's reputation in these matters was not, was not, very honorable. <laughs> we read, moreover, Jacob delivered, excuse me, moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. Chapter 31, verse 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You have deceived me and you carried off my daughters like captives in war. Chapter 31, verse 26. Deceived, deceived. Now, just days later, are we to believe that all these overtures of humility made towards Esau were genuine? <sighs> Not likely. Not yet, at least. Paul told Timothy to instruct his students to avoid foolish talk and vain philosophy. And he said, the goal of this command that I'm giving you is love, which comes from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. Not false humility, not showmanship, but truth in the heart. We're to be truthful, not just with our lips, but with our lives, the things that we say, the impressions we leave upon people, if we have any say about those things. God wants truthfulness. Number four, let us learn in all this that it is good to fear our enemies and so be driven to prayer. What a great lesson this is in our text. Look at verse 11. This is Jacob. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers and their children. That's great. What is prayer after all? Well, if it is anything, it is an acknowledgement of need. It is an acknowledgement of deficiency in knowledge or strength or will to rectify a serious problem by one's own resources or person. It is a cry for intervention from God Almighty. That's what prayer is. And Jacob in this prayer is not being melodramatic. Because when last he left his land of Canaan, it was in fear. And now as he returns to Canaan, there is fear again. 
What is the source of his fear? Genesis 28, verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. You remember, Esau is the hunter. He's the guy with the bow and arrows. He knows what he's doing when he says, I'm going to kill this guy. As soon as my dad passes on, gets out of the scene, I'll take care of Jacob in my own way. So Jacob, he's contemplating 400 men are coming against me and my family. They're going to kill me. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill my wife. He's going to kill my children. God, you don't do something. I'm a goner. In fear, in fear, it drives him to his knees in prayer. When Hezekiah was surrounded by the forces of Assyria, Sennacherib, the king, in arrogance, boasted of all the cities that had fallen to his army and basically said to Hezekiah, You know what? You're next. <laughs> You're next. And don't expect your God to help you. And the reason he said that is because none of the gods of the other nations helped them when Sennacherib came against them with his forces. You're an ax and don't expect God to help you. Well, Hezekiah took Sennacherib's boastful letter. He actually wrote these things down, you know. He took the boastful letter into the temple of the Lord and he displayed it on the floor there before the Lord. And the scripture says he prayed. He prayed. Here's his prayer. O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Give ear, O Lord, hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. And he goes on. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire. They've destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. 2 Kings 19, verse 15 and following. Jacob was afraid of Esau. But his fear of Esau did him good because it revealed in him his true danger and how pitifully his own ability would be to defend himself against his warrior brother. It drove him to his knees in prayer, as it did with Hezekiah. Can I say this morning that if you have a fear of dying... Because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 verse 31. If you have a fear of dying, the psalmist's prayer could be a model prayer for you. Here's David's prayer. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. And the Lord saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, verse 6 and following. It's the same thing to fear God if you've not made your peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's sane because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. And the scripture says it is appointed for men once to die and afterwards the judgment. So if you don't have a go-between, if you don't have a savior to plead your case and plead his blood for your sins, your lies, your immoral thoughts and deeds, everything that makes a man a sinner, if you don't have a go-between, a mediator, if you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in perilous danger. And it ought to drive you to your knees. But I can say this with the David, with the David song. If, if you're a poor man and you don't know exactly what to say, you can just cry out to God and say, Lord, help me, save me. I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. And David says, taste and see. <laughs> and what, when, when you do that, you'll see that the Lord is good. You'll see that blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. May God grant you that faith. May God grant you that repentance. That you will leave yourself assertiveness your hope in your own works and activities and plead the merit of Christ. I like the fact that Jacob was scared by the coming of his brother. He feared and he fell on his knees and he prayed, God, I need your help. My brother's coming and he's going to kill me. And if he doesn't kill me, he's going to kill my family. And my children, I can't stop them. 400 men gets my puny little forces. I can't do this. You have to do this. And he pleads for the mercy of God. Do you know every sinner that comes to salvation has had to do the same thing? They have had to plead the mercy of God. They have had to come to the realization, I can't save myself. This bundle of sin on my back is going to drown me in the depths of the deepest sea. I need a mediator. I need a savior. And God says, that's okay. I have just who you need. His name is Jesus. He's my son. He's your savior if you will have him. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. May it be the powerful sword that it is. May it slay us in terms of our self-righteousness. May it help us to see, as Jacob finally came to see, hey, he isn't going to make it through this, this uh, meeting with his brother unless the Lord intervenes. There's going to be a lot of blood in the valley here. It's going to be my wife, my wives, my children. And I deserve it all. But Lord, if you will, I'm afraid of Esau. But Lord, if you will, save me. Well, we have our Esau's in our life, Lord. It's the sins that we have done in the past to one another, to each other, to God, ultimately always to God. So God has a rightful case against us. He has a vengeance that's waiting to be meted out to us. But if we have a go-between, if we have someone who will plead our case, if we can have Christ, O oh Lord, as our advocate, our lawyer, our Savior, there is forgiveness to be found and mercy to be found at the foot of the cross. Grant us that faith to believe and that repentance to turn away from our self-righteousness and to plead like Jacob here, Lord, I'm helpless. I'm not going to make it. I need your help. That's what all poor sinners have to come to. Lord, make us poor sinners. Take away proud sinners. We ask for your glory and our good. Amen. Our